Welcome to Album Divers. This is a podcast created by two music lovers who still remember listening to albums from start to finish the way the artists intended. We give history, track-by-track analysis, and delve into the music lyrics of some of the best albums of the past and today. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Welcome to Album Divers. I'm Shane. And I'm Trevor. On this podcast, we take turns choosing albums to discuss and review. We alternate between one album released this calendar year and one that's been around a while. But we won't be doing it alone this time. We have a special guest with us on our deep dive of an album by one of our favorite bands. Katie, why don't you introduce yourself and tell our listeners what we'll be discussing today. Hi, I'm uh, Katie Darby Mullins. I teach creative writing at the University of Evansville, and I am the executive writer at Underwater Sunshine Fest, which is kind of a dream come true. It's like I wrote fanfic and then I got to live it. Today we're going to listen to and talk about one of my favorite records of the year, and I am completely unbiased. <laughs> Butter Miracles Sweet by Counting Crows. Katie, we are so excited to have you along for the ride. Obviously, all three of us are huge Counting Crows fans, but we know that you've got a little history with the band, even outside of just being a fan. Can you give us a little bit of a history on how you got to meet the band, how you got to be involved with the festival, and, and a little bit about that background? Uh, absolutely. Um, it's, it's a weird story, actually. Um, I always wanted to talk about music and by the time I was old enough to be a lead writer at Rolling Stone, that job didn't look like it did when Cameron Crowe was doing it. It was a lot more about blogging and a lot less about um, you know interviews or 9,000 word pieces on a Foo Fighters record that isn't contemporary anymore or whatever I was into at the time. Um, so I started doing some music writing for the local paper. I had a column at a local magazine in Evansville, Indiana. Um, so, no, you can't find it. Um, but I, uh, I started doing that when I was about 19. And then um, when I was 21, I started a music blog called Katie Darby Recommends, fully assuming that nobody would ever read it. But at least I wouldn't bother my friends anymore <laughs> <laughs> because they were all sick of hearing, okay, no, I really, really, really want to go track by track through the latest Kanye West record, and I need you to listen for at least 9,000 words. And again, these long exposés, that's just not a thing people have patience for anymore, but the internet's a dumping ground, so I was like, sweet, I've got this. And then I started to think, wait a minute, I could do cool things here. I have a platform. I made a platform. You know, this is how 20-year-olds are. I was impetuous and narcissistic and actually totally correct um so the first thing i i tried to do was get art alexakis on the phone from everclear i'm a gigantic oh, wow. everclear fan and then he did it he calls and just does this great interview with me and all of a sudden people are reaching out to me 
And again, I'm like 22, 23. By the time I'm 24, I get a call about a woman named Mary Gaucher, who's a brilliant songwriter. She was working on a record called The Foundling. And I happened to see that her publicist was also doing publicity for The Traveling Circus, which was a Counting Crows tour in what had to have been 2010, because I'm about to get married in this story. (laughs) So um, I was so excited to see that she represented the Counting Crows that I I wrote back and was like, hey, I have a blog and we have 25 readers every week who come back every week. (laughs) And I think this is a huge deal, right? I'm like, I will give you my stat counter password and you can see there are more than two people who read this thing. Right, yeah. And she laughed a lot, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And was right too. That was a good choice. The thing is, it winds up one of those 25 at some point had been Adam. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So she calls back. And uh, anyway, our interview was supposed to go 10 minutes. And he wound up pushing a ton of phoners back. We went longer. Just kind of had a natural connection. And he was like, hey, I'm doing a... At the time, it was called Smoke and Sand. It was a showcase down in Austin at South by Southwest with Ryan Spaulding from Ryan mm-hmm. Smashing Life, which was yep. another very, very, it is a successful music blog. And um, he said, you should come. I was like, I just got married. I just started a job. I don't and he, he was like, oh, it'll be fun. And it was. <laughs> <laughs> so that was March 2011. And uh, I guess after that, I just kind of kept hanging around. I don't go away very easily once <laughs> once I'm in, I'm in. Yeah. But we, we had natural chemistry as a friendship. There was a lot of just knowledge of making fun of each other, but also deep shared knowledge on books and movies and television and especially music. And he's also, of the people I've met, maybe the most generous of heart and spirit. Mm. He's just, I mean, he's silly and funny and he's so kind that the second you meet him, you want to just kind of shield him from the rest of the world because everybody else is not, not mm. quite as kind yeah. as he is. So well. I uh, wanted to keep him around. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you were recommending albums on your blog? It started because I wanted to recommend albums that mm-hmm. were not on cycle because cyclical albums, I could usually place a short review and then write a longer review. But off-cycle records, like if I really just wanted to look specifically at Exile and Guyville, and that's it, I'd do that. Um, Or when I did the Everclear interview, I went back and compared Sparkle and Fade to Songs from an American Movie Volume 2, which is a very weird choice. (laughs) But I wanted to kind of show how anger progresses and grows and changes over time. Mm Mm-hmm. That's not really an article you can place. And like right now, and right as we speak, I'm working on an article about how Courtney Love's brashness was both predicted by 70s kinks and celluloid heroes and the way fame works, but also led directly to Lana Del Rey being able to write more poetic songs about being angry and understanding violence on a a sub-physical level and things like that. Well, that doesn't happen without Courtney Love. And mm. so I am currently writing a long essay about Courtney Love that no one will ever read. I'm sure of it. Um, <laughs> but, wow. but for me, it was like, I've got to connect the kinks in Courtney Love and Lana Del Rey. Yeah, and other weird things have kind of come up as I've been writing it. It's very exciting. Wow. 
that's what the blog was for. There was a long post about Goodbye the White Stripes, a lot of Harvey Danger. God, do I write a lot about Sean Nelson. <laughs> but also like uh, when the Foo Fighters Wasting Light came out, I recommended that. Indie bands. I had one person put a blurb from the blog on the front of a record. It was like the coolest You're thing no that's way. ever happened wow, that's to me. That's amazing. Yeah. Sweet. yeah. So had that's you cool. written something on the Counting Crows and that's how Adam stumbled upon it? Or did he just become a fan organically? I had written on the tra- I had written on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings. Oh, great album. I needed that record in like a weird visceral way. Hmm. And when it came out and I, I they've always been my favorite band. Just I, I should go ahead and clear that. I love Adam, but Adam the frontman and Adam my friend have to be different people in my mind. Mm, interesting. Because yeah. otherwise I would implode. <laughs> because his his writing is otherworldly but i think the first time i heard hanging tree it was like looking at a self-portrait that was more real than a real picture you know what i mean it was like all of a sudden i got something about myself yeah, yeah. All, that whole record's kind of like that washington square is often my favorite counting grow song beautiful song um, though it rotates a lot yeah. yeah it's in my top five for sure it's so beautiful mm-hmm. and that that i loved like a fountain line i i can't i can't think of anything more correct than that and it had never been stated that way and the musical part that overlays that that sounds like the water and i mean it just it is it's a perfect line and a perfect sound on that part it's just insane and and so that was that was i'd written that he must have read that i i honestly don't know this story from his side (laughs) but i do know that the first thing that happened when we got on the phone was he said hey i loved what you wrote about runaway dorothy which was an independent band no one had ever heard of at the time. He's into independent music. He's into unsigned artists. He sometimes talks about the Geffen family picnic, which was like where all the musicians would go have a picnic and meet each other on the label. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. Things like that don't exist anymore. Yeah. So he created it. Hmm. Yeah, he's, he's basically created a new salon. We have painters, we have graphic designers, we have a manager who's on the business side, we have people who do social media, we have people who write, we have, you know, it's it's as close to 1920s France as you're ever going to get, is that living room. That's so cool. I'd love to be a fly on that wall. That's amazing. <laughs> Sometimes I look around and I, I don't know what to make of it. Live came in to play their 25th anniversary. Mm. And of course the room is pin drop silent. You can imagine. Mm -hmm. They play lightning crashes. Lightning crashes in old mother cry. Oh, look at everybody in there. I've got chills thinking about everybody in the room's crying. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And yeah, we were all shaken up completely and it was because it shouldn't have happened. It was so good, it shouldn't have happened. Yeah. So yeah, the blog was just all over the place. I, I, I was all over the place. But it led to me meeting some wonderful people. Um, Cameron McGill, who's one of my very favorite musicians um, and, and poets, but that's a weird story that I shouldn't have interjected into his life. And now I did, and he's doing really well. Um, but I got to meet Cameron. I got to meet... Um, I did an interview with Alan Alton at the Cowboy Junkies. The whole thing was really fun. Oh, yeah. It's kind of weird that it happened at all. And it's certainly weird Hmm. that anything came of it. (laughs) 
I think that's amazing. I, I draw similar parallels to us deciding to start this podcast. This is one of the reasons I think you're such a great guest for us is because I think there's definitely some kindred spirits here with, with our just love of music and just feeling like, I don't know if anybody's going to listen or pay attention or care about this, but I'm doing this anyways, so I might as well put a microphone out there and, and see if people are interested, or I might as well pull my blog up and type and see if anybody starts to listen. And this is how we get to meet people like you. And you mentioned Sean Nelson being somebody that you love. We had him on the show for our last episode. And, you know, just things like that that just think at the end of the day, it's all about the music, but it does lead to some pretty, pretty amazing things. And for you, Katie, is is one of those amazing things, can we tie those dots to the, the course that you now are taking? Is Did the blog eventually lead to that in a way, or is that a separate um, entity? That's weird. I'm I, So right now I'm teaching senior seminar and advanced fiction at UE. On Friday, I was introducing my seniors to my personal origin story, because my whole thing is do what you're passionate about, do what you love, write your own job. That's the whole beauty of a writing degree, right? You can you can create your job. Yeah. But I always tell it as like, I'm in the middle of two very weird stories, both of which are successful in ways they shouldn't be. <laughs> and I'm 35. And I got tenure last year, which Very is wow. really cool. Yeah. Um, but I, I also had a poetry book come out and I have a couple of other manuscripts ready to go. I'm in the querying process. So as I'm writing the blog, I'm also writing short fiction, a couple novels. I think I've got two completed books of poetry, one that's now been published. I'm in the process of working on combining the essay collection and making it a memoir um, and querying about that. Um, that's so you're not been busy really at successful. all. No, it's never. Right. <laughs> and yeah. I just started writing a TV pilot, which I'm like super excited about. Whoa, that's cool. um, wow. Yeah. yeah. So the only thing I would say the blog has in common with that is uh, first, now it means I get to teach a class called How to Write About Music. Yes. By having done the blog, I get to teach that class because yes. I'm now yeah. technically qualified, which is wonderful. <laughs> yeah. The, the other thing is it gave me practice writing about things I really cared about. It helped me lean into my own voice, which obviously is not succinct. <laughs> I like to say it doesn't matter if you're, you're Faulkner or you're, um, or you're Hemingway. Both of them found their thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I tend a little more Faulkner on the scale, <laughs> but that's okay. And I, I think that the blog helped me hone my voice and it helped me learn how to teach my students no. So you're into video games? Start writing video games. Start doing it now. Start practicing. Write about video games. Call developers. You know, like get mm -hmm. used to it. Start yeah. pursuing it. So that, yeah. I mean, the blog does That's tie good in. Advice. And, and it meant that like the things I've done with music, I do, um, there's a radio show on our local NPR that I've been on. Um, I do sometimes podcasts like this. I, uh, James Campion asked me for a quote about Hey Jude and his forthcoming book about Hey Jude. That's um, awesome. I don't even yeah. know how to express how exciting That's that is sweet. to me. Um, and, you know, I sometimes go to New York for a week. That's technically professional development for me. So the blog did allow me to use things that are mostly just me having fun and turn them into work. Um, yeah. And that doesn't mean they're work for me. It just means they count as work later. <laughs> Well, your, your writing is beautiful. You sent us some samples, and I really appreciate it. I'm going to have to go back and look through that. I think part of it is you just being a naturally gifted writer, but also writing about things that you're really passionate about. 
makes that come through even more. And so that's, that's good that you're passing on to your students and not just making them feel like they're taking a class and doing assignments, but they're actually doing something for themselves that they're going to appreciate and look back on and enjoy. Yeah. 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 And that's, I, I told them, you know, I, I have the two best jobs in the world. One of them didn't exist. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and my dad, um, when I told him about the festival the first time, actually teared up and said, this is what I always wanted for you. You're wow. an a r rep. <laughs> I was like, yeah. right. Yeah, this is what a r reps used to do. <laughs> we find new bands. We write about them. We bring them in. We showcase them. <laughs> So cool. That, that's yeah. amazing. So dad, dad got it. <laughs> I would have killed to take your class in college is what I was telling. That was Shane. my first question. How realized... come my college didn't offer classes like yeah. yours? I mean, how to write about music. Obviously I would sign up for that, but I, I was saying all that and then realizing I would like to take your class now. This, that, yeah. that's uh, <laughs> incredible. But you know, Shane and I have talked in some prior podcasts one of the impetus for us starting this is just slowing down and really listening to music from start to finish. I has texted Shane a little screenshot of your syllabus that you sent us where there was a particular day that you mentioned an assignment about why it's important to listen to music from start to finish. And we've talked on prior podcasts about you know not being real sure if that's something that still exists or will continue to exist. We start feeling like old guys as we say it, but you know, I'm always curious if the youth are are doing that, if in the age of Spotify and streaming, if the album format is still important in the hearts of people just finding their musical inspiration and, and diving into music. What has been your experience with students coming in with an assignment like that? Is it a foreign practice to them or are most of them doing that? So the class is a little bit of a self-selecting group, but there are three different types of students in there and they all listen to music very differently um and so you have people like us the the road dogs right like we're going to listen top to finish we want to know why it's organized the way it is uh my husband andy and i were talking last night about amy mann and the progression from whatever to bachelor number two and what happened right i was like you know what if you move i'm with stupid before whatever and then you take First day after the fair, you move it to the second to the last track, you get rid of this song, you move this around. Then I think whatever fits. And I realized that's an insane conversation. Like there's no <laughs> way my students are having that conversation, right? Yes, Nobody's yeah, doing yeah. that. Um, so we have the road dog guys. They, they are usually people who also play and people who care about narrative arc because a lot of musicians are very conscious of how their arc works these days. Mm -hmm. Um, so I do have a group of students that love and appreciate that. And to those people, I always have, you know, a ton of recommendations and, you know, I'll have a student who mostly listens to Spotify recommendations until they hit something they love. Um, but usually they'll bring it back to me. Um, so that's how I discovered Rayland Baxter. He came up on someone's Spotify algorithm. They checked out his record, and then we listened to Strange American Dream together like 17 times. <laughs> I, so. I saw I saw Rayland out at Hardly Strictly Bluegrass in uh, San Francisco wow. back in 2019, right before the pandemic. Oh. That was my last big festival before the pandemic. He's great. Was he as good as I would imagine? Oh, yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah. I, I get Amelia Baker in my head so constantly that it's like it's almost like my brain's elevator music. Like <laughs> the melody on that thing is so just catchy yeah so recap the three types of students 
You said oh yeah, sorry. The so there are three types. There's the there more? are the people who do it, mm -hmm. uh, like we right. do, right? Yeah. Um, then you have what I call the algorithm generation. Okay. I would say that's my biggest category. So these are people who like one song and then listen to whatever Spotify or Apple Music fills in next. I can't be too derisive about that because originally I thought that was just absolutely absurd. But they actually taught me that there's a lot to discover that way. Mm -hmm. um, I became a huge Junip fan that way. Yeah, I just started listening to them too. <laughs> Crazy. What is happening with them? They're the best, but they're <laughs> yeah. like not a huge I don't I don't know why we're not always talking about Junip, but like I I found Junip through an algorithm and yeah. the thing is the second I heard Without You, I went, okay, I got to go back and listen to the whole record. So I went over to Fields and just listened to the whole thing. Nice. I think that if algorithm listeners can get to where that's how they do it, they can be really solid music journalists. And that's kind of mm -hmm. how I approach that now. The algorithm isn't an enemy. <laughs> you know? Yeah, whether it's organically through word of mouth or Spotify and the algorithms, that is one way we share and discover music, which is great. I think the, the one thing that Trevor and I have talked about is whether or not you stop there and just listen to those couple tracks that made it on the list. Or if you say, Hey, I really like these guys. I want to go dive in deeper and discover a lot of people never dive deeper this exactly, generation yeah. coming up. So and, we are a lot older. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think I can admit it. And maybe Trevor felt the same way before us getting into this podcast that we were maybe losing a little bit of that album exploration part of us uh just being wrapped up in college and then the work life and fast pace we're consuming music when we're working out or cooking or hanging out with friends and we're not really listening with headphones and not doing anything else and really diving into the music with the lyrics in front of us and really trying to understand it like we did naturally as kids when all you had was a collection of cds and you're driving around in your car by yourself and you got the music on repeat you memorize the lyrics just by singing the songs and being a kid who can just be a sponge and absorb all that information. You don't need to go look up the lyrics online. You just learn them through listening and then you make those connections probably subconsciously and don't even really understand like how much that album is doing to your life and your development as a person. And then you get into your adulthood and you kind of lose sight of that. So, so this has forced us to resume that uh, part of us that was there, you know, in our development and also go back on some of those old ones and pick up new ones. And it's, it's really been a fun process and something that I think we feel like we're kind of becoming advocates for and need to push that everybody needs to be doing this. If you're a fan of music and you like this, at least at least have a few bands that you follow and listen to all their stuff and really, really try to understand it for more than just that listening experience, but for like the story that they're telling and the writing and the concepts and themes and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've kind of got to honor some of that. And what's what's funny to me is, um, you know, I say algorithm listening and this and that. It happened before Spotify and Apple Music. It wasn't the radio either, but bands would do it, right? And, you know, we're talking about the Counting Crows, so I can casually say, got no place but home to go, got bimfolds on my radio. Everybody was referring to everybody. Remy Zero releases Life in Rain, which starts with the line, I once had marigolds for eyes. So next year when this desert life comes out, a song starts, all my friends have flowers in their eyes, but I've got none this season. Um, uh. The Laurel Canyon sound is all cross-pollination between people who are cross-pollinating. 
And, uh, and, you know, I would argue, I think that there are two really brilliant examples of ways to get the algorithm without Spotify. And the, the number one is actually Lana Del Rey's Norman fucking Rockwell. It goes through so many references. There's a song called Cinnamon Girl that doesn't reference Neil Young at all. Really? Okay. But yeah. then later, there's a song where she says... Crosby, Stills, and Nash were playing, leaving Young out again, which is fascinating. But mm. then she talks about Joni Mitchell, and she references Sublime. She covers Sublime. There's all these different things, and she's she talks about hip hop. She talks about lots of '70s sort of references there. Mm. We also get the literature stuff from her, so she's a great algorithm listener. And and the other band I would say is an algorithm generator is Ockerville River. Um, their song yeah. plus ones is literally just i think it starts no one wants to hear about the 97th tier so close your eyes every line is a number in rock and roll plus one hmm. I, i'm not going to hmm. tell you baby about the fourth time you were ladied um i mean it's yeah you know, it's all over the place and yeah, it's it's great yeah. but they also have songs where they weave old melodies in. There's a song called Sitting at Home Listening to Otis Redding During Christmas Time, where he actually plays part of Dreams to Remember and mm. sings at the end in that song. I've got dreams, dreams to remember. And that's mm. how it fades out. It's yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. But he also has a song where they repurpose Sloop John B and use it oh. as a suicide note. And they, they use different lyrics. And then he has a song where he talks about Ray Davies and uh, his tracheotomy, which I didn't know about. And so they, they tell me this great story. And then the song fades out on like a, it's a Mellotron or some kind of synthed out keyboard going. Da, 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 da. It's gorgeous. If you don't know a lot of music. Listen to Lana Del Rey and Ocarville River and just look up the lines you don't know. <laughs> like, yeah. They know what they're doing. Um, hmm. And I have students who will do that. The third group is a weird one, though, and it's people who don't listen to music at all but take the class because they want to. And I didn't oh, know there was a thing. Yeah, I, didn't I did know not know that existed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they always surprise me. <laughs> people who don't listen to music kind of scare me. <laughs> you know, I found it terrifying at first, and then I was like, wait, I get to tell them what to listen to. <laughs> now it's like, yeah, this it's is like great. A fresh yeah, canvas. tabula rasa. Yeah. But, you know, I, I have people who come in and they're like, yeah, I only listen to music when it's on, on the video game. Hmm. And I was like, okay, cool. You're going to start by writing about video game music. Sure, yeah. And why that's a tone setter. Yeah. You know, eventually, like, I think on the syllabus, did I put that we were going to watch a full Guns N' Roses concert on there? Or... Did I leave that off too. on purpose? <laughs> <laughs> so we watched a full Guns N' Roses concert <laughs> from right. 1987. Yeah. And um, to say it was a loud, misogynistic affair is mm. obviously an understatement. <laughs> and Gen Z reacts a little bit against yeah. things like Guns N' Roses. I mean, you know, Axel says at one point, turn around i got a use for you and i'm bored <laughs> right okay, like, yeah, yeah, this is yeah. stuff that was on the radio <laughs> yeah yeah and they get kind of mad and i i was like no, no 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 not only do you not get to judge this because it's a different time you don't get to judge this because look at how much fun everybody there is having so you're not going to approach this from a political standpoint i need you to approach this from a why did this work mm -hmm. standpoint yeah and do you know every single person had a different answer for why it worked 
That means at least 20 things were working. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, there's still... Anthropological discussion. Yeah, and so many people didn't like Guns N' Roses, but I actually accidentally had three people by appetite for destruction. (laughs) So what are you going to (laughs) do? How many years have you been teaching this, the course? Um, it's, it's not offered every year. So I've only really gotten to teach it twice. Um, I'm hoping to teach it in the spring, but we'll see. But it's, I, I always, if somebody comes to me with a piece on music, which happens weekly, I work with them and hone it and do this and that. Each year that you do teach it, do you, do you think there's things that you learned from the prior year that are going to dictate how you might present it in future years? Absolutely. Yeah. I now recommend people take a coding class. I haven't. I don't know how to, Hmm. but I think it's important. Um, Next time I've added a unit on podcasting. Okay. (laughs) Um, Because I think we're we're writing right now, you know. It's just an interview and a conversation. Right. Yeah. Um, And it's it's so much fun. But, like, things like that I have to add every year. Like, okay, so you're going to learn how to do a track-by-track review. Nobody will ever ask you to do that again. But you have to learn how so that when you do write a 500-word synopsis, you know which tracks to pull and why. Mm. So I I back them up and teach them the stuff that, like, you know, Kurt Loder knows how to do. And then I fast-forward them through, like, the VJ thing, get them through the MTV era, (laughs) and uh, kind of plant them in the, okay, so here's how you blog. Because that's what you do now. I keep thinking it almost feels like fate that we brought you on the show, Katie, talking about Sean <laughs> Nelson, who we just had on as a guest, and Lana Del Rey, who we just released our most recent episode on her new album, Chemtrails Over the Country Club, which was amazing. Oh, man. I got to mention, too, you, you brought up Sloop John B. That made me think about when we reviewed the Beach Boys album, Pet Sounds, and <sighs> we, as a lead up to that, we brought on... Uh, a couple of Trevor's mom's dear friends from high school and they're lifelong Beach Boys fans and their friendship developed through their love of of the Beach Boys and in large part I believe if I get the story right but we brought them on the the show and, and talked about their musical experiences listening to the Beach Boys and how things have changed over the time uh, from when they were listening to today's generation. And one thing they talked about that stood out to me that, that makes me think about what we're talking about here and in, in diving into albums is that back in the day, they would have watch parties or, or and not watch parties. Oh, excuse yeah. me, They would have listening parties where somebody, you know, they'd have a circle of friends and, and somebody would decide to go out and buy the album. And then, hey, everybody come over. We're going to listen to this new album that just got released. It wasn't on Spotify. It wasn't you know, accessible anywhere else except going to the record store and buying that vinyl. And maybe maybe they had 10 copies and only a few people in town get them. So you invite your friends over and you sit down and you listen to the album start to finish. Everybody's getting their first listen together and how that's just something that would rarely happen today, if ever. I'm honestly, I'm, I'm <laughs> super honored y'all are having me on at all. But it is strange to me how much overlap there is in our taste i was realizing trevor we're from the same era but it sounds like both of our parents were really into music as well both of my parents managed record stores um i I saw you write about that in the syllabus with your mother i didn't realize your dad also had run a record oh he would be so sad if he heard that because he actually did it um a very long time and uh (laughs) he's he's a 
he wound up retiring last year as the vice president at a bank. But this year, he is running an incredibly successful Discogs store. Oh. No he way. now buys and sells records. It's like his passion. It is interesting how some of that stuff just overlaps in some ways. Because, yeah, we mentioned Sean Nelson being quoted on your syllabus. You've got Jason Isbell on there as well, who we're both right, big yeah. fans of. Yeah, that was of. my first pick when we started this podcast. Oh, really? Which one? Which one did you pick? We did something more than free. It was it was really tough to decide between that and Southeastern, but... It really is. I went with the probably less popular one of the two. You're probably right, <laughs> but something more than free does something for me. Oh, yeah, it did for me, I too. I can't really... Well, first, actually, I got rec- released from occupational therapy after my stroke when I proved I could play that song on guitar. So that oh, song will always be. Really? Wow. Yeah, but my favorite Jason Isbell song is Speed Trap Town. Which... Oh, it's such a good song. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. That's a heartbreaking song. Yeah. There are so many times we'll be listening to him, and it'll be a song we know by heart. He'll say something, and we'll just be like, man, fuck that guy. Like, it's so good. Like, <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah, stop him. Like, yeah. we just yeah. get so mad. Yeah. It's him and uh, John Darnell and of you know, the Mountain Goats. You know, every <laughs> once in a while, we'll listen to something and just go, oh, fuck him. And, like, right, we yeah. already know the yeah. song. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. That was that was part of what started the Amy Mann deep dive. It was, oh, fuck her for this. <laughs> She's too yeah. good at this. Yes, oh. exactly. I feel like, like that about Adam Duritz sometimes, too. Uh, yeah, me too, which is really yeah. hard. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is really awkward to like be in his guest room going, oh, fuck that guy. <laughs> well, with your, your writing background, your your taste in music makes sense because you like a lot of people that are known for being great songwriters and not, not just musicians or instrumentalists, but, but people who really pour their heart and soul into the words like the Counting Crows, like Sean Nelson, Jason Isbell. It's it's funny. I uh, I always say that Sean Nelson taught me a language for anger and disappointment hmm. on um, Where Have All the Merrymakers Gone? Um, because that hit me at a real formative time. And in Terminal Annex, where he says, I'm dreaming of the fist fight I never got into and thinking of all the mean shit I wish I'd said to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. It just like everything made sense all of a sudden. It flipped and filed down. So finally, I'm, I'm in the hospital. I'm in PT daily. I'm in rehab after my stroke at this point. And I thought, you know what? I'm brave enough to try listening to Terminal Annex because I pretty much listened exclusively to Bowie after the stroke. Hmm. Um, it was real close to the one year anniversary of his death. And I, I kind of had held him up as a little bit of a guardian angel. And I know that's silly, but my private relationship with David Bowie's music is weird and sacred and I care very much about him. So yeah, I, yeah. I listened to David Bowie so that I would live. And I know that sounds dumb, mm. but it worked. So I, uh, you're, you're talking to two people who don't think that sounds dumb. We put that <laughs> both as music fans and physical therapists. And one of which has a dog right. named Bowie. So obviously right. I almost said <laughs> you've got the best dog name ever there. <laughs> I, uh, so I, I listened to Ziggy Stardust 8,000 times, you know, that kind of thing. But then I, I thought I'm brave enough to try listening to Terminal Annex because that's where I go when I'm frustrated, you know? And for some reason, that line that I told you was always the one I connected to. And I wasn't ready then for him to say, save your little wheelchair empowerment films it isn't pretty to think so, but I can't feign interest now, which of course mm. is a Hemingway reference. But more than that, I was staring down the barrel of, am I going to be in a wheelchair and torn yeah. between mourning that and being furious that anybody had the audacity to suggest it. Mm. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so save your little wheelchair empowerment films had been hidden like a bomb in my brain for years. Sometimes you listen to something with through a new lens and what a great description of like a little not like a bomb or like a landmine, you know, being yeah, buried. Yeah, it wasn't there. like you, a... You, you stepped on and it was IED there all along. You, just sort, never, yeah. you never knew it was there. Yeah. It was so weird. I, I wound up later telling Sean about it a little bit. He was, he was incredibly kind to me while I was ill. He's always, you know what, Sean's just a nice guy. That's, he's, he's just kind. Um, yeah, yeah. We, we got that impression. He too. gave up yeah. about close to five hours of his time to come talk with us. Oh my gosh, us. yeah. yeah. <laughs> a few weeks he's, ago, that was he's amazing. He's a delight. Yeah. Um, and little by little, such a great record. Yeah, you don't get bored listening to him. He's the kind of guy you could just say, "Okay, go on, just keep talking." Yeah, I mean, we had a lot of fun. And he's he knows so much. His literary references mm-hmm. are insane, but he also knows everything about music. Yeah, uh, Katie, did you mention earlier something about listening to an album and wanting to rearrange the songs because they didn't fit right? Yeah. About thinking, well, if you put this here, you put that there. Okay, did I catch that? I was arguing, so we were talking about Amy Mann's Whatever. Right, yeah. I do think it is perfect. It is not as good as her other perfect records. Ah, okay, <laughs> gotcha. Um, that's, which is a hard argument to make. Um, how can something be perfect and not as perfect? Well, you know, if you can write as well as Amy Mann can, then you get to do that. <laughs> well, I wanted to, I wanted to, to mention, and it's kind of a, a, side, a side note, I didn't want to throw you off earlier because it probably wasn't totally relevant, but that made me think of this exercise that, that Trevor challenged me with, uh, I don't know, a few months ago. He had put together, I can't remember how you phrase it, the Perfect Counting Crows album, not necessarily your top 10 songs, but from their entire discography, pick 10 songs and create your perfect counting crows album for whatever reason that may be whether it's a concept or a theme or just some songs that had to make it on there and try to piece them together so he did this in preparation for exposing his unborn child at the time right william to the music yeah 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 so he put this together and said this is the collection of counting crows that i'm going to have my firstborn child william listen to when he when he comes to join us here on earth and so he shared his Counting Crows album with me and then said, you know, for me to do the same. So challenged me to come up with mine. And it's a really tough, it's a really tough thing to do. I mean, we didn't even have to write the songs or <laughs> put the music together, but all we had to do was pick from, you know, over a hundred songs and try to just grab 10 and place them together. And even, <laughs> right. even that part alone is tough to do. So then imagine the people who are writing the songs and making the songs and then where does it go? And are we finished? Is it done yet? It's kind of like if you're, writing right if you're writing a book oh, or it's insane. an essay yeah. or, or even doing a movie how do you know when it's finished how do you know when it's complete and do you need another scene or do you need another chapter or another song and is this out of order um, but it was a fun experiment for us to try to put together this perfect counting crows album and uh yeah just a glimpse that's of a what brilliant artist experiment. has to do <laughs> No, that's it. That's really we, good. We'll share them with you. We, we might have to make you do I it. I was going to say, I'll do it. it. Yeah, I'll, I'll do play it. Too. Yeah. 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 Sort of like let's, let's, August let's nights and butter miracle <laughs> or satellites. Oh, and or I'm pretty sure here. Washington Square was on mine. So I was thinking about that earlier when you were saying that's one Unfortunately, of your songs, no matter what, that's going to have to anchor me. Yeah. <laughs> now, wait, do we get to count the stuff on Across a Wire? Because that version of Have You Seen Me Lately it would make mine too. You make the rules. Yeah. Okay. You make the rules. I'll play the yeah. game. <laughs> yeah. You do it. Ten yeah. Counting Crows tracks create the perfect album. 
That's the challenge. Yeah, <laughs> we should put so that fun. out there you know, too. I'm a lot of people to that. the Counting Crows group. We could throw that out there too, Trevor. And I did throw my list out there. I, I actually you? did this as Counting Crows fans do. They they had all kinds of thoughts and and opinions, <laughs> um, which was totally fun for me. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, you we're... sent me uh, a list, and I can't remember who did it, but it was somebody that was supposed to have credibility, giving the the top 50 Counting Crow songs of all time or something. And I think I disagreed with a lot of them. I think some of my favorite were toward the bottom. <laughs> like, no way, this guy's totally yeah. wrong. I guess that's just a testament to how many great songs they have that speak to people differently, you know, because yeah. my yeah, favorites were personal connection toward to the bottom them. of his yeah. list. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I always have weird ones. <laughs> yeah. Weird favorites. Yeah, it kind of depends on depends on your mood and, and what you're connecting with for whatever reason. But you, you said, Katie, that uh, Counting Crows is your favorite band? They're my favorite band. David Bowie is my favorite musician. It's really okay. hard to, yeah. <laughs> to not say both. <laughs> so. <laughs> so have you been following them since the very beginning, since the early 90s, and been a fan? Um, mid-90s. Mid-90s. Okay, cool. uh, I think I bought my first Counting Crows record when I was nine. Awesome. Um, and so I, I became a gigantic fan. So by the time I'm a teenager, I used to like to clip my disc man to my belt loops and go on bike rides because <laughs> that's what you did <laughs> in the 90s and early right. 2000s. And I used to listen to Recovering the Satellites and uh, the VH1 Storytellers Across a Wire disc just over and over and over. And I, I had the flying demos and a bunch of stuff like that. So I was, I was hitting Love and Addiction and Marjorie pretty hard, too. Yeah. I mean, I still know those songs in my bones. It's, mm. it's a marrow level. And... Uh, <laughs> So my dad and my mother divorced when I was going into high school, my eighth grade year, somewhere in that area. And I, as teenagers do, um, decided to become judge, jury, and executioner on things I didn't fully understand. And I kind of uh, just stopped talking to my dad for a long time, which sucks. He was my concert music buddy. He's my guy who stays up late with me and watches concerts when I'm home, we did everything musical together. So finally one day he's like, hey, what can I do to get you to talk to me again? Because he didn't give up. He kept emailing, he kept calling, he kept dropping by the house. It just wasn't gonna happen. I, I, yeah, I'm a Texan yeah. woman and all four foot 11 in me was just resistant. <laughs> and so yeah, yeah. Um, I said, you know what? Counting Crows are opening for The Who in Sacramento on July 4th. You wanna talk to me? We'll talk in Sacramento. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> he called my bluff <laughs> yeah he called my bluff um so the who is one of my other favorite bands and i'd always wanted to see them and he's a huge fan he'd gotten me into who's next by like the time i was five i was mm. very very competent at turning records over he the story goes he taught me how to use a turntable when i was two because i needed to flip the white album um, mm -hmm. so he's, he's very involved that way. So he, he buys tickets and gets plane tickets. And a week before we're supposed to go, John Entwistle overdoses in a Las Vegas hotel room. Mm. Oh, um, and I basically said, okay, well, that's a sign. We're not talking. <laughs> this is just not happening. Uh, John Entwistle's the who's basis just in case. And so like, yeah. I, I, and in a move that I have actually seen Pete Townsend say he regrets, he decides to go on with the tour because he says the people behind the scenes need a job. Everybody has tickets. We're going to do this. He was not fond of the idea to start with. If he hadn't done it, 
my parents wouldn't be remarried, which they are, um, to each other. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> because that trip was the beginning of sort of rebuilding everything. That's amazing. Huh. So the Counting Crows and the Who are at the center of the, the origin story for how I know how to love. Hmm. And yeah. uh, it's, it's really, it's a beautiful, maybe the most beautiful love story I've ever seen play out in real life. Oh, because wow. they they relearned each other but they did because pete townsend pushed on <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so uh sorry pete thank you pete <laughs> wow so. all right katie it's been a, a pleasure talking about all those stories and and hearing your your connections to to music and and counting crows i'm sure we could talk forever on that about diving into music and lyrics and album construction and I'm sure we'll talk about some of that as we get into the album. But let's, for the sake of time, transition into talking a little bit more about The Counting Crows. Trevor, I know you you did a little bit of uh, history and put something quick here together just to introduce the band to whoever's maybe been living under a rock and doesn't know of The Counting mm. Crows. <laughs> <laughs> I know they're one of your favorite bands of all time and, and mine as well. Before you get into the history, when did you become a fan? Sure. You know, it was kind of a revolution to both of us when we did our introduction episode, even me as I was saying it, that part of the background to me starting this podcast with you was this history I have with my dad of us going to this little record store in eastern Washington and you know me picking an album of something that I had heard on the radio or seen on MTV and then him grabbing an album from his era and then us putting him on in the car and driving to Seattle to watch baseball games together. And I remember going into that record store, trying to decide what to get and recalling seeing Long December music video on MTV the week before and asking the cashier, yeah, can you help me find this? I think it's called Recovering the Satellites. And he walked me over to it. And I remember that, that being my entry point. And I got hooked on recovering the satellites and then it was backwards to august and everything after after that and i've been a fan ever since and kind of obsessively as well i, I went back and got all the flying demos and all the unreleased things and then just the live performance and fell in love with how adam changes lyrics and makes everything alive and new and it's a long time in between albums as we'll talk about when we get into the history and and leading up to this one too but it's kind of like the next chapter of a story every time he puts out a new album. I don't have the luxury, like you, Katie, of knowing him outside of The Front Man, but I sort of feel like I do just because I've, I've read and watched and listened, and, and so when the next album comes out, I try to see if I can sometimes connect those dots in interviews and you know the experiences that I know that he has had and make their way into lyrics. Maybe sometimes I'm conjecturing and not 100% accurate, <laughs> but... It feels like I'm a part of it, and I think that's one of the things I appreciate about Counting Crows is it just feels like he really lets you into his world, even if it's through your lens of, of interpretation as a fan. He's, he's brilliant. at and, and this is something I tell my writing students. Specificity and using your personal details actually connects someone to you closer than trying to write something vague that everybody can understand. Mm -hmm. um, which is why I Want to Hold Your Hand isn't as effective as A Day in the Life. Both are good songs. One of them's a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. it's, it's because the specificity. And, and yeah. Adam is the king of telling his story in a way that makes it feel like a universal story. Yeah, uh, I think that's really well said. 
Shane, do you remember your entry point to Counting Crows? You know, I've been thinking about that. I, I'm not sure. I've been a fan as long as I can remember. I'm sure I discovered them somewhere junior high or high school, late 90s, early 2000s. So at that point, a few of their albums were already out. But I, I do remember I had pretty much the full collection. Hate to admit it, but I didn't pay for them because I'm I was a broke high school kid, but those were those were the Napster days and when you had a, a band that you really enjoyed, you could you know, go find their music and I remember having all of them in my in my collection that I had burned and, and drawn all over them and made them fancy and, and whatnot, put my own album art on there. And uh, it was definitely a special part of my collection. And then, of course, I followed them over the years, all their, their new stuff that, that they continued to release. I think when I really became a huge fan was probably in 2009. I was fortunate enough to see them live in concert twice within, I think, about a 10-day uh, time span. This would have been right after I graduated from college, and I was back home working. I was I was working the 2 to 10 shift at the nursing home as a CNA, and my buddy, who was a huge music fan as well, uh, was working as an EMT, and we both had to work that full week, but we were talking about going to Summerfest, a uh, music festival in Milwaukee, and we were kind of back and forth on, should we go? Is it possible? Can we make it happen? And so long story short, we went and we left about 11 o'clock at night, drove through the night all the way to Milwaukee from Carroll, Iowa, which was about, I don't know, six or seven hours or more, something like that. We borrowed my mom's van. We took the seats out of the back and we put like this <laughs> sleeping setup in the back of her van and we took it to Milwaukee. So you, you, you get a, a three-day general pass, I think was like 33 bucks or something back then, which is crazy. We got three days of music, right. 36 hours of music for $33. So that's what convinced us to do it. We were like, yeah, we can do it. So we both had like Saturday, Sunday, Monday off or Friday, Saturday, Sunday off or something like that. I can't remember exactly. So we were like, okay, so we can leave at 11. We can get there. We can sleep for a couple hours. We can do the festival and then we'll drive home <laughs> that following night and work the next day. It was crazy, but we kept seeing the lineup and um, looking at the, the, the shows that were free. And then there was this stage that you had to pay for. And I think it was like, I don't know, pretty cheap. It was like an extra 25, 30 bucks or something. But back then it probably seemed like a lot. And I remember my buddy saying like, hey, the Counting Crows are going to be opening for Keith Urban. And we were both huge Counting Crows fans. Neither one of us country fans back then at all and not Keith Urban fans. But we knew Counting Crows were opening. And so he convinced me like, yeah, it'll be worth it. They'll at least play for an hour and you know, it'll, it'll be fun. So we got counting crows tickets the first night and, and saw them. And then, so that was like the highlight of this big festival, which stands out in my mind is just like a really fun uh, experience where I did something kind of crazy. We, pay, we paid off the, uh, the, the security guard at the, um, the parking lot and just let him, he let us stay there like overnight in my mom's van. Cause we didn't even know where we were going to stay. Cause there was, there was nowhere to, there was nowhere to go, but we were just parked underneath this big overpass downtown Milwaukee by this festival. And we, we were asking the guy like, where can we park? Where can we stay? And he's like, well, if you know, if you give me, give me 25 bucks, I won't, I'm going to be here all weekend. I won't tell anybody. So we camped, <laughs> we camped out in the van all weekend, lived out of a cooler of, I don't know, lunch meat and 
beer <laughs> and <laughs> but uh yeah so so the whole experience is just very vivid in in my mind and counting crows seeing them was was great because we were both big fans and that was my first time seeing them live and then I get back from this festival, I got to work a full week, and another friend of mine who's also a big Counting Crows fan says, hey, Counting Crows are going to be at Saturday in the Park up in Sioux City. It's a free, it's a free concert. There's going to be music all day, 4th of July festival. So that following weekend, we drove up to Sioux City, Iowa, and got to see them uh, perform at that 4th of July festival. And, and that was incredible because they, they played for at least two hours and they mixed in some you know some patriotic songs i remember they played this land is your land and the whole crowd was singing along and then they shot fireworks off afterward while they were still singing and playing and it was just crazy and after that like i had had so much firsthand close experience with with seeing adam on stage and his presence and just absorbing the music i was like all right that's it i'm hooked i'm a i'm a counting crows fan for life <laughs> you never given me all those details no before, i guess Shane. That I, was fun I, listening I didn't, to you. I didn't yeah. fill in on on those details yeah. earlier when i brought that's up great. the summer fest <laughs> that's great yeah it's it so awesome it's weird we both have july 4th counting crows stories <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> that's that's very we had fireworks too <laughs> yeah sweet yeah, very cool. And Trevor, how many how many times have you seen them? I know you've seen them in concert. Oh quite gosh, a bit. I, pro- I would say close to a dozen, perhaps. And Trevor's something. the concert junkie. I, He's. I think I think, can't help, I think uh, probably many. shy of a dozen, but um, wow. but approaching it is what I would probably say. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, very cool. I'm trying to add it up, and I'm terrified. I have no idea how many times I've seen them. <laughs> We're pushing twenty five in my oh, head. Oh, that's awesome. what I remember. That's awesome. <laughs> Unfortunately, I haven't seen them since then, but they're on my radar. Uh, they go touring again. This will be great. You know, they're they're. I know I, I heard yeah. in an interview that Adam is really looking forward to going on tour and singing the full the full suite of of songs and and the challenge that that'll be to play music for eighteen minutes without really a, a break or a pause. I'm sure they'll they'll jam on some sections and they'll probably stretch it out to twenty five thirty minutes or so, knowing knowing uh what they typically do live but then they're also working on their their second uh butter miracle suite too from what i what i hear from rumors going around there so i don't know if that'll be another four or five songs that complete a full album kind of like saturday nights and sunday mornings in a way i wonder if there'll be different themes or if they'll connect almost like a a movie and a and a sequel coming out um i'm looking forward to that so maybe they'll go on tour and and do the whole shebang i don't know we'll see timing wise but it'd be awesome to see them once they get all this new stuff out there yeah they're playing the suite and it's going really well we wound up missing it but i've seen some videos and i've heard from um, sean barna and matt susich who are opening that it's just outrageously good and i'm completely yeah. unsurprised <laughs> yes. yeah so um but yeah I, I i'd be remiss to to not mention that i think that it was logical for adam to be concerned about playing a four song suite um yeah but i guess if you know the band you also know not really it's it's not really right. a risk if, if you're still here at this point <laughs> right like uh, you're, you're, you're you, you in know, you expect it a little yeah you're in at this point yep i was watching an interview with adam and he he was saying that he was worried that he might be a little out of shape he said you know i'm getting up there in age and 
He said he'd been working on working on his core and doing some cardio because right. he wasn't like, sure if he'd have the, do some sit-ups. Oh, yeah, God, he wasn't Adam. sure if he'd have the the lungs or the windpipe to last that long. He's like, I don't want to be up there on stage, you know, winded and trying to sing. He's in better <laughs> shape right. than I am. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Yeah, though. I'm excited to see them see them again sometime. Hopefully in the near future because it sounds like this new album, Butter Miracle, Sweet One was something that Adam's really proud of. So it sounds like when he was out in England, he was really inspired by the the surroundings or moved to hop on the piano and start playing and writing again. And that's essentially where Butter Miracle was born. And he, he speaks really highly of it that maybe it's some of his best work or something he's most proud of that it kind of re reignited that, that passion uh, for music that was maybe a little dormant considering they haven't put out anything in seven years, I believe. And that this was something different, this project, this idea of putting four tracks seamlessly woven together is something he was kind of playing around with. And since it's taken off, it sounds like he's maybe going to work with that going forward too. So it's pretty cool because after 30 years of making music, he's finding some, some new interest that's going to get the creative juices flowing and probably create some really good content. So I'm excited to, to follow them going forward and uh, see them live. So before we dive into the new Counting Crows album, Butter Miracle, Trevor, why don't you give the listeners a little background on the band and a, a brief history uh, of who they are and a little bit about where they've come over the past 30 years up to this point. Yeah, that's a lot to cover. I'm going to try to be brief because I know we're going to dive into another Counting Crows album in the future, and I'll get to rehash all of this, and I really am excited just to get into these tracks. But just for anybody, like you said, who might be living underneath a rock, Counting Crows originally formed in Berkeley in 1991, and it started as an acoustic duo. Singer Adam Duritz, who is in a couple other Bay Area bands, began playing with guitarist Dave Bryson as a side project. By 1993, the band had grown to a stable lineup of Duritz as vocalist, occasional pianist, and primary songwriter, Bryson still on guitar, Matt Maley playing bass guitar, Charles Gillingham on keyboards, and Steve Bowman as drummer. They quickly created a demo tape and caught the attention of several record labels with Geffen winning the bidding war. Their debut album, August and Everything After, was released in 1993 with hits like Mr. Jones, Round Here, and Rain King, among many others, propelling the album to seven times platinum and two Grammy nominations. During this time, they also added second guitarist Dan Vickery, who was also a Bay Area native. In 1996, they released their second album called Recovering the Satellites, which broke from the folk roots of their debut and incorporated more electric guitar and distortion thanks to Dan's addition. Lyrically, the album dealt with Adam Duritz's disequilibrium with his newfound fame coming off the success of August and Everything After. It went two times platinum in the U.S. and featured hits like A Long December, among others. In 1999, Counting Crows released their third album, This Desert Life, which saw the band experimenting with lush and spacious sounds, but keeping many of the elements that made the first two albums successful. Longtime session guitarist David Immergluck joined the band officially for this album and subsequent tour. Hits like Hangin' Around and Colorblind was also featured as the soundtrack to the movie Cruel Intentions and propelled this album to platinum status as well in the U.S. 
In 2002, Counting Crows released their more heavily produced and radio-friendly record called Hard Candy, with hits like Joni Mitchell's cover of Big Yellow Taxi featuring Vanessa Carlton and American Girls featuring Sheryl Crow. During this time, drummer Ben Mize left the band amicably to focus on family and other projects and was replaced by drummer Jim Bogus, formerly a drummer for Ben Folds and Sheryl Crow. Also following the tour for the album, longtime bassist Matt Maley left the band and was replaced by Millard Powers. In 2003, they released a greatest hits album called Films About Ghosts. In 2004, their song Accidentally in Love appeared on the soundtrack for the movie Shrek 2 and was nominated for Academy Award. In 2008, the band released Saturday Nights and Sunday Mornings, which was a concept album about chaos and debauchery of Saturday Night, being the more rock-driven first half of the record, and the morning after, represented by the stripped-down, more acoustic-based second half, Sunday Mornings. To further paint the distinction between these two halves, Saturday Nights was produced by Gil Norton, who also produced their more rock-heavy second album, Recovering the Satellites, that we mentioned. And Sunday Mornings, the second half, was produced by Brian Deck, who produced the album that we're about to talk about today. In 2012, they released a covers album called Underwater Sunshine, which subsequently also became the name of a podcast that Adam does with writer James Campion, and a music festival that we talked about in New York featuring independent artists, for which Adam is the executive producer and Katie is the executive writer. In 2014, Counting Crows released Somewhere Under Wonderland as the first album of new material in six years and first on Capitol Records after leaving Geffen following an 18-year relationship with that label. So that brings us to this year, 2021, and the release of four songs called Butter Miracle Sweet One. There is currently, as Shane mentioned, a Butter Miracle Suite 2 in the works being created and plans to release them together as a complete album once they're finished. These four songs are the first original material in seven years, and they're unique in that the ending of each song transitions into the next one for one complete work. For production, Counting Crows once again used Brian Deck, as I mentioned, who produced the Sunday morning's half of their 2008 concept album. Adam Duritz has been quoted saying that the idea to create these songs as a suite came to him in August of 2019 when he was finishing writing the first song called Tallgrass on piano while staying with a friend in London. After moving to a new chord progression, he started singing new lyrics that he originally thought might be a new section of the song, and he eventually realized this was a brand new song entirely. And from here, he got the idea and got genuinely excited about creating a set of songs that all string together in this way. The album was officially released in May along with a short film in June accompanying the songs. The album title, Adam has said in interviews, has a specific meaning which he has only told a select few people just to keep an element of mystery to the album. Perhaps we can throw a guess or two out as we talk about these songs. Should we get into the music? I'm psyched. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. The first track or the first part of the suite is called Tallgrass. Outside, she said to me, as if I knew just what she'd say. Come outside, we'll watch tomorrow. Pull the curtain on today. Come outside into the tall grass and the old corn and the shit. Come outside, oh child, into the wild and weep for it. And 
God, there are a lot of things that are really exciting about this song to me. Um, so the first time I heard it was the first time a lot of people heard it, which was when Adam and Emmy played it live on a Stephen Kellogg live stream last year, long before the record came out. But it was just acoustic. So it was really hard to kind of picture what it was going to be, unless you know Adam a little, at which point you're like, oh, okay, I hear what's going to happen here. Um, and we were very excited. But... This is one of those songs that, like, as a friend, I'm so proud that he wrote this. As a fan, it made me cry more than mm. once. And I think the part that kills me is the connection to the rabbits and children. There's blood upon the clover, and oh God, his eyes are open wide. And there's blood upon the clover, and oh God, his eyes are open wide. Staring up at me in infinity in the shrinking English sky. And all along. But then later makes us shake like rabbits, which of course has been used as a, a moment of dying, not a moment of life. The time we shook like rabbits felt like children made us ask this can't And then yeah. you've got the made us feel like children, and then later. There are trains that can take a girl to Paris. There are planes that could bring you home. There are some of us get broken when we're children and we never get it back once that's gone. And all of yeah. a sudden I was just like, I was weeping. And it's it was because you start with the rifle and the disillusionment of the... Uh, the rabbit and this whole moment and of course he's got one eye open to the rain at one point so everything's about these open eyes and this shaking gasping last moment and then we go back to childhood and that's a just a skyrocket of a start for something that's going to play out into a, a world of relationships these characters are all in conversation with each other and themselves and his previous work i mean there are references to have you seen me lately in the song um, yeah, it's yeah. so, I mean, it's just so exciting. Also, uh, hats off to Adam for, I think, being the first person to use the word ossifies in a rock song. Um, <laughs> I, I was wondering, especially was as great. PTs, wondering if uh, we'd have any any reference to any other songs that have oh, that. Man. Yes, that, what a, what a cool way to <laughs> depict something coming to being. Yeah. And as the idea ossifies, I can't believe it's mine. I was reading that that Adam, you know, not only does he take a lot of time in between albums for good reason, as a quality over quantity thing, as you were alluding to, I also heard that as a byproduct of his dissociative disorder, he almost has to relearn playing the piano every time. It's like that doesn't stick for him. You know, this is the first song that he wrote for this, and really the first in years. And he just got the inspiration there in London and figured out how to get a piano up to his friend's house there in London. And you can tell it sort of starts more rudimentary. And then, of course, the band folds in and things blow up from there. But just thinking about how in some ways that limitation might be part of what helps him be creative because he almost has to relearn. And that's something that keeps this music fresh, I think, for him in a way. I'm sure there's many parts of that that he wishes were different. 
but that's one thing that he turns into a strength, I think, and that's an interesting part of this song and this album to start, I think. I uh, I wasn't sure if that was public knowledge or not, the um, the piano thing, so I'm glad to hear that that's something. I, I wasn't going to bring it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I sometimes forget what I know from where I know. Um, yeah. But that, to me, is maybe the most inspirational part of his songwriting in a way that no other songwriter does everything is a blank page always yeah that's beautiful that's how poetry is written and he he hates to have his lyrics compared to poetry and i i get why i he's doing something different he's adding tones like when when the electronic bit comes in at the end of tall grass and all of a sudden we have literal static on the airwaves right like okay that's mm -hmm, really cool mm -hmm. you can't do that with a poem i know i've tried um, so it's, it's really, I, I get the kickback on that. That said, he's having to start everything like you would if you're writing a different kind of media, because most yeah. people's skill set is defined. This never is. That might sound limited to people. That makes him actually more dangerous. It means it's unlimited. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. That's what I was trying to say for sure. Yeah, so there's not a clear structure to find lines and rules that have kind of boxed him in. It's just, you know, somebody who has tons of knowledge on, on writing and music and, and creating sounds, but has an abundance of options Yeah. when he sits down every time to choose from to create something, which probably explains why sometimes there's gaps in the making of the music. I think I... I either saw in an interview or, or read uh, somebody was quoting him in an interview that oftentimes when he gets the itch to write that he wants to sit down, write the song, create the song, produce it, go on tour, you know, make, make the album, do everything right away. And then it's done and it's bottled up and put on the shelf for a while. And then he needs a break because he gets so wrapped up in that process. When he's in it, he's fully in it. So those gaps almost are necessary to recharge or rejuvenate so that when he gets those creative juices flowing again, it will be a product that's consistent with what we come to expect. I love too, Katie, you had mentioned earlier that he often borrows words and lyrics from other songs and, and the climb at your bedroom window. I was immediately taken back to several songs, but thinking about a murder of one that's, you know, you can look outside your window, you know, it's just that idea of kind of escaping and that feeling of exploring and, getting back outside. And for Adam, I took that as maybe going back to creating and getting back to some of the things that he does. But I love that he ties those things together in future songs. He does it the right amount. If it was rehashed over and over again, it you might start thinking, are there original ideas being left out here? <laughs> but to sprinkle them in as little breadcrumb trails from album to album, I think really connects you to the music, especially as a longtime fan. Well, and I think, I think uh, when he does Round Here, I don't think he does this insert anymore but in the bridge where he sometimes inserts original stuff a lot of times you get that come outside sound mm -hmm. and uh so of course we get come outside she said to me just like i knew just what she'd say and, and it's like wait a minute now we're referencing things that people who've seen the shows might recognize but that aren't actually in you know so we've got the bedroom window reference which we've got in a murder of one then we have live reference points to round here. It's just so Palisades is, is in there. Yeah. yeah. And that one's there too. Yeah. And that's, it's so cool to me that he's, he's figured out how to take and um, 
prune lines from one thing and repot them in another place, right? <laughs> like, right. You know, and Katie, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. I may just be pushing it too hard as a longtime fan, but I was getting lost a little bit on the tense at the beginning of, you know, who she might be at the beginning when it says come outside, she said to me as if I knew just what she'd say, you know, so it's like somebody that he maybe knows very well, but it sounds like somebody that is almost like a, a muse or somebody that's leading him to this thing. And so immediately as a longtime fan, I'm like, oh, that's Maria. This is Maria. This is Maria that's calling him outside or calling him out to, to play music. But I wondered if that entered into your mind at all when you read that line. I've read enough reviews to know that that is right now people's read on that line is ah, that it's okay. supposed to reference back to Maria. And that, that makes sense. I, I know the way he uses Maria in his songs as, as a stand in sometimes for feelings that would be hard to express from his own narrative perspective. So in a dissociative way that, that read absolutely makes sense. Uh, for me, uh, the first time I heard it, I wasn't sure until we hit there are planes that could, t or trains that could take a girl to Paris, there are planes that could take her home. And then all of a sudden I was like, ah, this girl is going away. This is the girl mm -hmm. who's leaving. And I, I became just enraptured with this idea of somebody who means everything. And that hasn't changed. But, you know, it changes from uh, at one point, he says, she takes a train to Paris for a weekend with her friends. They take you places, trains in summers at 200 miles an hour. She takes a train to Paris for a weekend with a friend. They take you places, trains in summers at 200 miles an hour that you've never been. Did I ever say the way your breath takes mine away? Oh, I forgot. I cried there, too. Uh, did I ever say the way your breath takes mine away? Mm. Oh, yeah. That's a beautiful <laughs> line. <laughs> Gives me chills. And the instrumental around that line, too, that I wonder, is it Emmy that is strumming yeah. mandolin at that moment? Yeah. 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 He, he nails that. But then when it goes from, you know, the, the train can take you places, too. There are trains that can take a girl to Paris. There are planes that can bring you home. I feel like she's home and he could take a plane, but something's broken and he doesn't know why. And yeah, I'm sure some of that is from personal knowledge of just who he is as a person. Yeah. And I think some of it is probably just conjecture, right? I think we all make up our own read of the story. Um, yeah. especially on something this long in narrative, but I've seen a lot of people talking about, okay, is the beginning of this record saying goodbye to Maria? Um, mm. and I, I don't necessarily think it is. I, I wouldn't be shocked if, uh, that character shows up again. Yeah. I, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if that character shows up somewhere in the record, <laughs> that record. Yeah. But, um, I don't know. I, I, I feel like it is kicking off an understanding that, we're about to meet a narrator who doesn't have a lot of quiet moments, right? There's a lot of stage and a lot of noise in the world of this. Mm -hmm. And to get that narrator from the quiet to the noise to the audience instead of being on stage, because this 
this record doesn't end with our character on stage. It ends with the character in the audience for the first mm-hmm. time ever. Yes, I love and that. And I think that for me, going home means being a fan, not being on stage. Mm. And mm. so okay. I, I feel like this girl who's trying to get him to come see, right, this, the sunrise or the sunsets and all these things is trying to remind him there there are things outside of your noise. I think that's a great interpretation. Shane and I have talked on multiple episodes just about how your interpretation of music is is your own, and that's one of the things I think is so nice, especially about Counting Crows lyrics, is there's enough specificity, as you mentioned, in those you know those personal names and places that really tether you to it, but enough open space for you to roam free and insert those lyrics into your own life and your own narrative. And I think that's interesting to have three of us that are such big fans to hear how that filters through you know, our own interpretation and where we end up with. That's, that's so interesting. Trevor, you mentioned in your intro about the short film that was done to accompany this music. And I watched that probably before I really did a deep dive of the lyrics. I'd, I'd listened to the album a few times and got most of the lyrics, but I hadn't sat down and tried to interpret the meaning before watching that film. And the film was outstanding, but I think it kind of directed me in a place where I, I was I was interpreting the album and internalizing it further based on what I was visually seeing, which is something we don't normally do when all we have is the lyrics. Katie, do you, do you by chance know if Adam was involved with the production of that or at least approved it and said, yes, this does fit the album? This makes sense to some degree. He gave the filmmaker control. He had things he wanted, um, but Cliff is a friend of his, so it, it was it was a natural connection. Um, Cliff, Cliff mm-hmm. knew how to. Or Clifton Collins Jr. Pardon me is is a brilliant actor and really did a great job with it. But you know, I would say the band was removed, sort of, but. They knew what they wanted to. It was one of those that he didn't want to direct it. He didn't want to write the video, but he did want it to tell a certain story. Sure. Yeah. So for me, seeing how that started with the middle-aged older man in his cabin or somewhere out, out in the country, reflecting on life, writing, you can see the, the, the place is a little messy, looks kind of scattered. And then to, to wander out into the tall grass and the, and the lyrics, the contrast between the tall grass representing life and growth and, and something that's, that's blooming. And then there's also matter that's decaying and a rabbit uh, that you see is shot in the, in the film that's dying in the midst of so many things that are thriving and, and living. It made, made me think this is a guy reflecting on the purpose of, of life, the meaning and trying to figure out how everything pieces together and how it's all kind of interconnected and things things go pretty quickly from life forming to uh, ending and how all that's kind of tied up in that, that tall grass. To, to me, it set the stage for the whole album. Out at the grassland, past the living and the dead, men are forming and decaying, a perpetual Circles around the sun for the infinite and ageless 
the perpetual uprising, the, the whole idea going back to that infinite and ageless. Well, okay, that's why we can yeah. shake like rabbits and feel like children is because childhood and being born is infinite and ageless. So is dying. Yeah. So to live right, is yeah. to be infinite and ageless and to die is to be infinite and ageless. Very true. It's, it's incredible to me. I have been to London once in my life, and it happened to be when Adam was in London writing these songs. And I would, you know, because I sort of follow all of that and I was listening to the podcast, of course, he had just shaved his head before this trip and all of these things. I just thought a cool connection, thinking that he was in London at the same time that I'm also there listening to the podcast and Counting Crows music. Yeah, that is really cool. All right. Well, a beautiful way to start this suite. Let's transition into the next part of the suite. This is called Elevator Boots. song it's probably my favorite on, on the suite if i had to pick one that transition is awesome where where the beat really picks up it kind of takes you as a listener from this more deep reflective personal state kind of a seriousness uh, to the tall grass to this more lighthearted, fun atmosphere and and again looking back to the the film that's paired with this here you know you can tell it's uh a memory or, or a reflection on the past, kind of a flashback or somebody who's maybe daydreaming and thinking about that time in their life when they were out touring and caught up in the, the life of a musician, the fast life, the travel, the parties, all the women. It's a pretty fun transition uh, to go from a fairly serious first song contemplating life and purpose and whether or not people can see who you are and, and things of that nature to now fun, the high, the excitement of of touring as a musician. That's a perfect way to describe the song. It just, it feels like moving from something very confessional into something narrative, even though you get mm -hmm. those narrative or those yeah. confessional moments, still you get that. Like, uh, I met Alice near the Alamo one summer in San Antonio. I remember her. I don't remember me. I met Alice near the Alamo one summer in San Antonio. I remember her. Don't remember me. Oh, I love that <laughs> it's like, line. I mean, yeah, that's so insanely, cool. insanely reflective. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah. buried under that jangly, catchy. And then, of course, you get to the chorus, you got the elevator boost. And it's so catchy mm -hmm. and it's metrically broken well. 
and I know we talk a lot about, um, we're, we're probably going to have to, Springsteen, The Who, um, sounds that, or Elton John, things that, but I hear yeah. Billy Joel in this chorus too. And, and, uh, yeah. especially with that, and they want you and then and like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. stretched yeah. syllable in the middle of a lot of staccato notes. That's a very Billy Joel trick to pull. And I like, I love that so much. This song to me just sounds good. This is a solid rock song. It, it reminds me a lot of classic Counting Crows, too. It just has that vibe. Like, if you played this song to a fan who who knows of Counting Crows but doesn't really know them too well, I mean, they would recognize it right away. Oh, yeah. There, there's some some songs, you know, like, I'm not sure if that would be the case with The Tall Grass and uh, some of the Counting Crows' previous albums um, that they've released that deviated a little bit from some of their mainstream hits of the 90s. This one has that, that feel to it. She could tell you now if you want to Cause they want you Do you want to? I sneak and sparkle pen glide It's hard to feel and I can't get high And I don't always understand how to smile That line that you read about Alice near the Alamo is probably my favorite line on the entire suite. And I love how he revisits it later as it kind of slows down and says, Alice knows the secret. She could tell you now if you want to, because they want you, do you want to? I took that as kind of like as the rock star that's on the move and and going from one show to the next, the music slows down and those words kind of slow down too to kind of go, you know, if you pause for a second here, this person that maybe you met that was a short-term thing has a lot of wisdom or there's a lot of a connection that you could get out of this if you want it, if you want to kind of stay and, and listen to that a little bit. And then right into that, it picks up again with the, ah, snake and sparkle, pant and glide. You know, so he's, <laughs> he's back on stage somewhere. He just doesn't, doesn't quite get a chance to, to do that or it's not the right time for that. And I just thought that was a brilliant way if I'm, if I'm interpreting that part. No, right. and I think, I think you're, you're nailing it. And I think what's really fascinating is that I snake and sparkle, paint and glide. Great lines. And and he, he's said that his strength is verbs. He's not wrong. He knows how to use a verb. That line's great. But what's interesting to me is you've got something that strong, and then he sings the next line like it's a throwaway. It's not. It's the key to the whole record. <laughs> and But it's a, the way he throws it out vocally. It feels like a cast-off. And he said, and it's hard to feel, and I can't get high. <laughs> it's like, but it's cast off. Yeah. No, it's hard to feel is sort of the center of everything. It is buried right. in the middle of the most commercial sounding song on the record. That's brilliant. I remember when Hard Candy came out, and I was like 16, 17, somewhere in there, I think. And coming off of... August and recovering the satellites and even this desert life and being this, you know, angsty teenager, I was just all over Counting Crows for that reason. You know, oh, yeah. The sadder the song, the better. And I remember initially when Hard Candy came out, having to figure out how to have a relationship with that album and, and assimilate it into my vision of who Adam Duritz and the Counting Crows were. And it took me a while to do it. And now it's one of my favorite of their albums. But 
looking back to like you said all of that stuff is still there I mean, it's just buried in some of this glossy bubblegummy stuff but man some of the darkest lyrics of of their whole discography you could argue is on hard candy i would argue i think that's that. a good example of this <laughs> this line too yeah it's hard to feel i can't get high you know let's keep singing about going to another show i, I just think um that's a really cool little dichotomy within this song and within counting crows if you're paying attention sometimes yeah, I read something from an interview with Adam that I wanted to share that fits right into with, with what we're talking about here in, in reference to this song. He said that that's from the perspective of the part of me that plays music. Life can be very temporary. People, towns, places, they come into our life and they fade out of your life as you pass by. But there's always this gig the next day. The, the permanent part of it is still the music and there's always another gig. And that's the thrill and excitement of it. I thought that was was pretty cool, you know, for him for him to say that and um, how that connects with the lyrics and what what you're getting, you know, from that. And that you can't get high, and it is hard hard to feel at times. But that's that's kind of what you're chasing, and that's always why it's sort of the next big thing that that you're seeking. Whether it's whether it's another show or I don't know, we could we could extrapolate that and apply it to so many things in life where you're constantly looking for the next big thing or the next fix or the next th- the next moment the next the next high and there's always kind of that cycle that keeps coming around i love that quote and we'll get into it later with the fourth song on this suite but you know from the perspective of of a fan of of music sometimes that can be the the same thing that they're looking for the next show or the next song or the next album that there's that that longing for that feeling of feeling high and free and excited and and how the music can do that for you whether you're the performer or the listener and so i think that's kind of foreshadowing for how this suite uh ends and uh the film accompanied with it as well that shows you know how somebody can be both of those roles they can be the musician and the fan and understand how that moves them on both levels of that yeah definitely well, should we transition to part three? That's uh, my favorite song on the record. I might have to agree Let's with you. All right. So with that, we'll transition into the third track of this suite. This one is titled Angel of 14th Street. So I had a visceral reaction to Angel of 14th Street. I'm, I, I that I think was similar to my reaction when Dislocation came out on Somewhere Under Wonderland, which was uh. not most people's favorite track on that record. And I, I've had to have some pretty bad knockdown brawls with people <laughs> to try to say, no, this song is brilliant. And no, I can't tell you why. Um, because I, I can't explain it myself. Um, so synesthesia is a condition where your sensory input gets mixed up. And most people whether they have it or not, are affected by it if they hear it in something else. I always use Marcy Playground's Sex and Candy, um, Disco Lemonade, which is a phrase that doesn't really mean anything, but really strikes something in people. Angel of 14th Street did the same thing for me um, that Dislocation did. 
which was, I went, oh, I see myself. There I am. And that's a hard thing for me to get a handle on these days since my stroke. Mm. I don't actually recognize my own face in the mirror. It's a face and I can work with it, but it doesn't look familiar to me. Mm, wow. And it's it's just a neurological hiccup. But uh, between that and then losing the vision in my left eye to optic neuritis, I started having to recognize myself in other things. Um, so I got a bunch of tattoos and I... I wear rock shirts and that is how I recognize myself because if I look in the mirror, I don't see my face, but like today I'm wearing a mountain goat shirt. Well, okay, there I am, you know? Hmm. And yeah. so in this record where he does the, the angel learns to live with things that make her feel uneasy. And after all the dreaming's done, she screams, wake up, wake up, wake up. And that points back up to a place earlier in the song where he says, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up new. Put on the clothes that make you feel like you're not broken. And so that that masking technique, the feeling like I'm not broken, leads to me acting like I'm not broken, which leads to me being alive. I feel like a lot of people who have become in any way neurologically or physically impaired are constantly trying to find quote unquote clothes that make them feel less broken because the Mm. skin and the body doesn't work. And notice I say the, that's an accident. It just happens now. The body looks like Mm. this. Mm -hmm. I am not the body and y'all are PTs. So you get that. You get that there has Mm -hmm. to be a separation sometimes. Absolutely. And, and so the body is a thing I work with to stay on this plane. This song feels like a negotiation between somebody who's dealing with the body, um, but also with the soul and trying to connect that, which goes back to that, if, if God is dead, then why am I here? This is a person that's seeking desperately to figure out their part in the tapestry. it's just it's stunning and this song I, I sobbed almost all the way through and then when the the brass came in i i think i actually gasped the first time i heard it like i just i was it so does. stunned yeah, it's amazing yeah. oh. call it this is my favorite one it is also not something i can explain it's a gut instinct um and my gut instinct on this one is just so physically i can't see my face i think in reality none of us know our face i'll go back to billy joel right we all have a mask 
that we wear, the stranger and all of these things. Mm -hmm. I think that we don't recognize the stranger in ourselves, um, which it's weird to have to go back to 1971 to explain how I feel now. But I have to. It's not weird to us. <laughs> the exploration here is going, okay, so I'm a stranger. But who is that? And I think, you know, we, we mentioned Adams talked about dissociative disorder. Um, though I, I don't think in any way we can say he is the narrator of this song. Um, and I, I wouldn't presume something like that necessarily. But you get a really, really good read on that kind of disconnect between being and living because those aren't the same thing. Again, something once you're big sick, you you know. It also does something really interesting with her feather stale with sex and beer, which feels like an American Girls reference. Interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, I got a Horse Dreamers Blues uh, and And I think Rain mm -hmm. King's got some moments that could go, I mean, he's great with feathered as a verb. And yeah. he's great with feathered as a, feathers as a noun, and so I think it connects a lot. But man, the line that hit me, and only like super geeks are going to agree, is that leave a light on. Which, to me, the second I heard it, I was hearing, Would you leave a light on for me? Now, from Barely Out of Tuesday. Yes, yeah, I, I would immediately thought of Burley Out of Tuesday as that well. That reference yeah. point back to the can you see her waiting there down by the sea. Okay, well, we're not by the sea, but this is a song about someone waiting to live and then realizing, no, wake up, this is a recording. <laughs> you know, like, you got to get out of here. You got to shake up, this off. Wake up, wake up, this is a recording. A ghost of England when we get a dream of America. I love your interpretation of this song. I, I'm so glad that you had the experience to unpack some of that, even if it's through your own lens. I think a lot of that makes a lot of sense. And this was one that I probably would have to agree with you was my favorite of the bunch. And I didn't have that all unpacked myself, but I think I'm connecting to it more deeply through yours. I just loved the trumpet, like you said. You said it almost made you gasp. I, I'd have to say it was a similar thing. I mean, it's just it's such a pure and high sound, that first one. That, that's Chris Watson, who is an, also a jazz and gospel and, and Zydeco player and who was also featured at the beginning of Palisades Park. What a perfect spot for it, and it really does just jump out, and, man, that it really makes this song for me. Yeah, it just, I mean, it, it sends it into the stratosphere. And like I said, I'd already kind of been crying. The first time I listened to the whole suite, I pretty much cried throughout, which I hate to admit, um, but it's just how it worked. And I, I did. I, I had a physical reaction when that came on because I wasn't ready mm. for it. And that's a good thing. Yeah, I love when he yeah. catches me off balance. Oh, yeah. When music can move you like that. Right. What did you make of the the change in subject with all, all the repetition of leaving the light on? I mean, I, I really like that part. That's what I, I found myself singing along a lot with the refrain there. But I found it interesting. It goes from, did we leave the light on to, does he need a light on to, did he leave a light on? Did she leave a light on? Do, do we need the light on? So he, so he toggles back and forth between she, he, and we, and who left the light on and who needs the light on? You know, is it kind of depicting that everybody kind of needs somebody to leave a light on for them and, and that 
you know, you're trying to figure that out. I'm not totally sure if I understand why that subject was changed so much in there. If I had to guess, that's the correct answer. (laughs) I think that's right. (laughs) Um, The line hit me a little differently in a weird, but, but again, this song was like a personal gut punch for me. This was a hard one for me initially, not because I didn't love it. I immediately loved it. So when you're anxious, one of the number, there are two things that when you leave the house become problematic. Did I leave the oven on? And did I leave a light on? Mm -hmm. Right? Right. Okay, now add, I've had a house fire. (laughs) So this, did I leave the light on? Did he leave the light on? Did she leave the light on? That makes sense. And it feels like anxiety and static the way your brain does. Great. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Here's the personal part that's weird for me, though. Um, So... During COVID, my husband works at a hospital, and um, I just realized Adam's never heard me talk about this song. <laughs> if you're listening, Adam, sorry, this is weird. <laughs> so Andy works at a hospital, and COVID obviously has made us all very anxious. And I was having panic attacks, like I'd say five or six a week, which is way not normal for me. I'm, I'm a two-a-week girl at most. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Usually not nearly that often either. Um, but my doctor was like, if we can get them down to two a week, that'd be great. <laughs> like, that'd be awesome. <laughs> like, let's give it a go. Yeah, right. But one of the problems I was having is I would wake up and have a panic attack because I wouldn't know where I was. That doesn't make any sense. But I told my husband the whole time I was a kid, I slept with the light on. Like not nightlight. That's normal people behavior. We're talking full-on banker's lamp tilted towards. My husband uh, has a hard time sleeping with lights on. Well, had a hard time sleeping with lights on. He says, Mm, you know what? The bedroom lights are on a dimmer switch. Let's give this a go. All of a sudden, my nighttime panic attacks stop. And we have no idea what's happened, but we're like, okay, well, that takes us to two a week. We're good. (laughs) So um, then in February, I found out I had gone completely blind in my left eye which I didn't realize had happened because the funny thing about lying is if you do it well enough, you buy your own lie. And so mm-hmm. when I couldn't see something, I'd think, oh, I'm just crazy. I can see it. I just can't process it or whatever. That's just some kind of, no, it's gone. Um, and I didn't know that yet. But it winds up when I was waking up in the dark, I was waking up in true dark, meaning I literally woke up to a void. There was nothing. And so that was setting off the panic attacks. I literally didn't know where I was. And oh, wow. the did he leave a light on? Did they leave a light on? Did we leave a light on? And then tying it to, if God is dead, why am I here? Um, we just moved to somewhere south of here. Did, did we leave a light on? We've got all these, these sort of evocative, meaningful lines that aren't necessarily narrative. They're more imagistic. But it's tied to, did we leave a light on? Do you need the light on? And it's, it's not right, my read is. And, but personally, yeah, I think I needed a light on more than anyone knew. And for reasons of anxiety and static, but also for reasons of blindness. Hmm. And, and being lost in a void. And I Mm -hmm. think that metaphorically that actually does translate um, because I think we've all been in a void for a while. Yeah. 
And, you know, I remember Definitely. John Oliver blowing up the year 2016 because it was the worst year ever, right? Um, because we lost David Bowie and Prince. Uh, obviously, the political election was sort of a lightning rod. <laughs> Everybody yeah. kind of became garbage people on the Internet. It was horrible. Yeah. And um, then 2017 was worse. <laughs> And then 2018 was worse. I think Jason Isbell even says something like, this last year's been a son of a bitch for almost everyone I know. That came out, yeah, I think, in yep. 2019. <laughs> and then, um, mm -hmm. After that, it got worse. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, right. so I think the yeah. light, I mean, we've needed it at least since John Oliver blew up 2016. I think I mark Bowie's death as the downhill. Um, so mm -hmm. January, what, 10th, 19, or 2016? That's That's all downhill from there <laughs> i i think that's totally fair I, I might even just throw in if if god is dead why am i here maybe that maybe that's about david bowie's death works too. for me <laughs> works for me i'll allow it <laughs> yeah I think that's a great interpretation Th thanks for sharing the the personal connection there one thing that trevor has mentioned a lot and and i like it it's that once once the the music is put out there it, it doesn't really belong to the artist per se anymore. It's now for the listener to consume and, and interpret. And although there may have been a, a correct answer or meaning behind the song, something that inspired the artist to write it, it doesn't really matter once it's out there. It's it's for the listener to interpret. And, and the goal isn't really to figure out the song necessarily, uh, but it's, it's to connect to it. And, and as the artist, they want people to be moved. They want people to be empowered and feel the music. And as the listener, that's kind of what we want too. So regardless of which way you look at it, it's meaningful in both senses. And that's something that Trevor and I were talking about in reference to this song, that there is two ways to, to take it because sometimes leaving the light on is something you do, it's a mistake, you forget to shut it off. So there is that anxiety part of it or forgetfulness where you're, you know, did, did I remember to shut the oven off? Did, did we shut the lights off? Did we pack a swimsuit, you know, like whatever it is you're leaving, you're kind of reflecting on like, did, did everything get done? So there is kind of that feeling that's evoked. But then also the idea that people can leave the light on for you. And that's a, you know, a sign of, of caring. Somebody's coming late or like Motel 6 will leave the light on for right. you. <laughs> so at first when I, when I looked at that, I was thinking somebody left the light on and this, and this character is questioning, like, did I leave the light on? Did, did she leave it on? Did somebody leave it on? And then like, well, if I left it on and I forgot that I left it on, do I need the light on? Did I leave it on for myself? Like, am I the one who left the light on because I need the light on? Or did somebody else leave it on for me because I need it? But just this whole idea of the light being a significant part of the song. And I'm not sure I totally understand it either, but it really grabbed me as kind of the highlight. The reference is it's brilliant all the way out, but then if God is dead, why am I here? Did he leave a light on for me? Is a totally yeah, like, different, did, like did talk God about a tuning fork, right? Like, yeah, because no kidding, by the yeah. end, there is a reference, but only mm -hmm. really one. And it's, so it's everybody in the world. Did we leave the light on? Should we leave the light on? Is that a good idea? But then all of a sudden it's cosmically. Right, is the yeah. light on for mm. me here? Yeah, yeah. And yeah I, I picked up on that too. That was the only time that there was an actual name to a character and not just a pronoun. Right. And uh, that was interesting. I think that's awesome interpretation from both of you. Yeah, I, I just couldn't quite dig myself in on this one to try to unpack that. But the lines that I kept coming back to was 
trying to juggle what the meaning behind that was, and I'd oscillate between it being a positive thing or something anxiety-provoking. So I think that's where it hinges for me as well. I'm, I'm going to go back and listen with all those thoughts in mind and see where maybe it concretizes. Isn't that what anxiety is? Either the fear that a good thing is going to come to an end and there's too, or that we're going to get too much of it and won't be good anymore? Yeah. So yeah. I feel like the anxiety and the safety of it are actually the same thing. Anxiety is the absence of safety. And it just, it absolutely just astounds me that he's able to write like, like I would kill to be able to write like this. <laughs> yeah, that whole idea of lacking control or not having an understanding. Yeah. Whether it be good or bad, it can, can cause anxiety, whether you're setting out to perform, which should be a positive thing. People coming to watch you, that can provoke anxiety and so can fear. So can anything that's unsettling or just not secure. Yeah. I wanted to comment on what you were sharing about the tattoos and, and wearing the rock shirts to remind yourself of who you are, that, that idea of, of appearance to show not only others who you are, but also who yourself and in your situation, it's a little uh, more unique, obviously, from, from what you shared from your medical history. But in general, this idea of, of looking the part or, you know, representing yourself in the way that you want uh, others to see you, there is something about your clothing and how you wear your hair and and things like that, that, you know, it is in a way, not really as far as saying a costume, but it is something that uh, we can define ourselves as and, and maybe at times hide behind if you wake up and things just aren't going well, you say, by golly, I'm going to, I'm going to look good today. I'm going to put on a collared shirt. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to talk the part, look the part. I'm not going to let people know that there's something else going on behind the scenes or deeper down because you have to be a certain way. Uh, so I think in general, everybody can relate to that. And then to look at what Adam has shared about um, his dissociative personality trait and, you know, how he always saw himself as somebody different than what he saw in the mirror. So he said growing up, he always felt like when he looked in the mirror, he was supposed to see somebody else. And in, a, in an interview, I kind of gathered that's what the dreads and the beard and, and all that stemmed from is that he slowly started to put that together. And then eventually he said, you know, this is how I've seen myself for all these years, not the person that, that I was born before. So that's just kind of interesting how maybe the, the writer of the song has that personal connection to it as well. I think, I think that's a really good observation. Because I, I think there is a degree of dissociation. Actually, it's funny. I brought up dislocation in this track and dislocation that makes more sense on a gut level than on a logical level. It's it's more sensory. I'm written yeah. in the radio. I dream in my TV. Dislocation, dislocation. Um, right, yeah. But so Ehlers-Danlos, the primary, like, disorder part is that things dislocate all the time mm -hmm. and there's there's no connective tissue that functions um and my right. collagen is written incorrectly in the dna that's fine it's i've always been that way but that also means i learned how to reset body parts real early so dislocating mm -hmm. has always been a part of my life which different than dislocate or dissociation but it's similar enough and has enough yeah. of the same well, what, like I said, the body and my mind, I think some people have to deal with the mind and my mind. And I think dissociation yeah. is the mind of my mind. 
whereas dislocation is the body, my mind. So mm. I don't know if that yeah. made sense. <laughs> it did make sense. I, yeah, I think that I that's true. I think that makes a lot of sense, and, and I can see the ties between this and dislocation now in that way. Even the this is a recording part and written in the radio, you know, those two things overlap a little bit to me in the lyrics. Well, should we transition to the last part of this suite? Let's do it. Yeah, definitely. All right, we're going to transition to the fourth and final song on the suite. This is Bobby and the Rat Kings. This was probably my favorite transition out of one movement of the suite to the next. Just have that guitar, very catchy. And then the lyrics, I'm an elevator kid pushing buttons when I want to go home. I'm reading the lyrics to my right here that say, my generation hasn't even got a name of its own, but it's more <laughs> rightly said, my degeneration. degeneration. <laughs> you got to have the extra G in there. Of course, tying it to the who. And then just reminding us that uh, there is a difference in today's generation than when that song was written with those next words. We just buy what the TV sells and almost never stop wishing we were somebody else. But the unifying part to that song and that era. But tonight in the dark, I can be myself. We just buy what the TV sells and it almost never stop wishing we were somebody else. But tonight in the dark, I can be myself. When Bobby and the Rat King come to play. It's, it's so yeah, good. the transition was amazing. I, I, I'm going to geek out in my field on this song. Metrically. Please. I don't know that anyone has done anything this exciting in, in a long time outside of hip hop. We're going to have to take run the jewels off the table for me to make that comment. Right. But like right. we all like in terms of rock music, the syllabic and like mid mid line rhymes and in stopped rhymes are so solid and they're outrageous. Z tried to edit Reddit, but instead it said it'd eat in her phone. She goes from tender to yes. sender till she remembers she's a flame of her own. That's brilliant. But then after it pulls out of that beautiful slow bridge, it goes back in on that do 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 which also feels like the Who. The bridge feels very E Street Band, but that that do 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 playing us back in. There's some leather wrap fender strap kid with a pick finger twitch. He's got a recipe for radio rain. Don't know which. And then we get some leather wrapped fender strapped kid with a pick finger twitch. He's got a recipe for mm -hmm. radio rain. I don't know which. 
Jesus, I wish I'd written that. Yeah. That awesome. <laughs> yeah you said it really well. I, I love the the inner rhyme of that, especially on that Tinder to Cinder. Oh, right? Uh, just so good. Way to bring yeah. the contemporary problem of too much information and input into a song that sounds like a classic song that would have no conversation with that, right? Yeah. Yeah. We've literally got G generation and then Reddit <laughs> within a minute of mm -hmm. each other. <laughs> and that's right. That's and how Tinder, it should right. be. That's yeah. how these things work. <laughs> yeah. That's how society is. It's it's additive and collaborative. It's not subtractive. So by using his his reference points from knowing generations of music, he's got an encyclopedic knowledge. Um but then also interacting with the actual world that we live in which I think is a very important thing people forget to do. Yes. He, he takes us from Bobby and his perspective to somebody who learns that they're allowed to love the music too, and they can just go find themselves at the show. They don't have to find themselves in the spotlight. You can find yourself in the dark, right? And for Adam, you know, I, I think as big of a star as he is, I get the sense especially in listening to his Underwater Sunshine podcast obsessively, that he sees himself in both of those lights equally. I get the sense that he's not that different than me and Shane doing this nerdy podcast when him and James get together doing that. I mean, all of the stuff he pours into, the level of excitement he gets in his voice when he's talking about those connections, like you said, that are additive over time. It gives me some excitement as somebody that can quote, only experience music from that side of the spotlight that this is a pretty good spot to be. Yeah. <laughs> and I think right, he recognizes yeah. that even as somebody who's, who lives in both parts of it. That's why we do the festival, right? I mean, he's got to <laughs> right. be in the audience sometimes too, but he hasn't really gotten yeah. to do that in a while. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's funny. I keep hearing first album in seven years, and that's 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 true. There is another side of the truth, which is um, he's guested on records you wouldn't believe over the last seven years. So many yeah. records you'll never yeah. hear, records you've heard already. And I mean, he's he's constantly providing background vocals or, you know, some kind of an ear or a sounding board. Right. He's he mm -hmm. uh, he's constantly immersed and engaged in up and coming music and with music that's being written by contemporaries yeah because of that i mean you get things like uh matt susich's very covid directed new normal which is beautiful and warm and sad and hopeful and adam's background vocals are mixing in the back he did a song on sean barna's sissy which uh yeah yeah um that I loved that album that year. Um, routines. Shoot, why am I? Routines, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. he did routines uh, with what him. What a beautiful song. Yeah, and yeah, and Sean's records are always great. Uh, Sissy was a breakout, and he's done nothing but just get better. And it's it's like yeah. fuck that guy. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And I'm saying that, that if you're listening to this, Sean, fuck you. <laughs> you're too fuck good you, at this. Sean. <laughs> um, yep. But he's he's so talented, but. Being around music as a fan, I do think, informs this record. And I think that makes that seven-year gap not a gap. Yeah. I want to touch on the film 
uh, again because I, I really like the part where you see the older musician in the crowd. He's playing his own guitar as he's watching the band, and he just has this almost a smirk on his face. He's just thrilled to be there to come full circle from the beginning of the film and the beginning of this album. Somebody sitting, writing, reflecting on the past, and then to look back and think about the time that they were touring as a musician and how exciting and fun that was to then end with ultimately the focal point is the music it doesn't matter if you're the one making it or you're the fan it's the music that brings everybody together it's the music that gives you that experience that makes you feel alive and gives you that high and makes you want to come back for more whether it's the next tour date or the next concert on your list when you can scrounge together the money to go pay for another show if you're the fan to go watch it it's it's the music that uh that does that to you it's it's almost defiant in the video isn't it like the the character Mm -hmm. has learned it's acceptable to just love music again and that is defiance Uh, at this point loving something genuinely loving it and and allowing yourself to genuinely love it is in absolute direct defiance of contemporary culture wow i think that's so true and i have never thought of it in that way. And in some ways, I feel like that's being a fan of Counting Crows because, I mean, you know, they started out with August and everything after and every highbrow critic was talking about how they were the next Van Morrison and all these things. And then somewhere in there, someone decided that it wasn't, quote, cool to like Counting Crows. And I think Counting Crows, or Adam specifically, just was like, I can't control that. I don't even care about that. And they just kept doing their thing. Suddenly now it's cool to like Counting Crows again because the people that continue to listen and frankly people that continue to create music are talking about how important Counting Crows has been to their development as a fan or even as a as an artist so I think that that's exactly right just being defiant of just saying I love this and and I don't care what anybody says yeah yeah it's interesting people have that perspective because Adam has said that they they were approached early on by a lot of people who would have given them a ton of money to quote unquote sell out and and do things somebody else's way but they decided to to continue doing things their way and obviously it worked out pretty well for them but those those critics along the way probably don't know their full discography they've probably never even listened to a full album because if you were to only judge Counting Crows based on their radio hits, then maybe you could come to the conclusion that they're a pop band or that they were appealing to mainstream with a few of those songs. But that kind of organically happened that people just liked those songs and that they ended up in a movie like Shrek or that there was something that was catchy and, and uh, could be sung along with easily that it became a radio hit. But, you know, none of those songs that were quote unquote their popular songs were my favorite songs as a a listener of Counting Crows and that's not because they ended up on the radio that's just because they have so many other really good songs that a lot of those critics probably never even heard so yeah it's not really fair to to label them as you know selling out or becoming mainstream or whatever but if there were those credits then they're they're going to be proven wrong by uh, a lot of the newest work because obviously it's very unique and it's very um it's very authentic and uh novel as well i don't i don't know too many people who have who have written a suite like this and connected four songs that could all stand alone but that also weave into a 20 minute long story that that has a a film 
that goes along with it that's very moving and, and i mean there's so many things to this so many layers it's not you know just a pop band i mean this is a pretty deep artist very good writer no and i i, could, I couldn't agree more you know, it's funny. I'm glad you brought up the Shrek soundtrack because I think that's where a lot of people went, oh, they're just a pop band. They just sold out. No, first of mm-hmm. all, that's right, actually yeah. a good song. Second of all... <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is a good song. Second of all, <laughs> also on that that soundtrack are um, Dashboard Confessionals' As Lovers Go, which is a phenomenal, just bang-up emo song, which has nothing to do with the rest of the songs on the record. We also have Pete Yorn's cover of the Buzzcocks' Ever Fallen in Love. That was a dynamic soundtrack. (laughs) Yeah. But people didn't bother to look at the soundtrack. An animated, you know, children's type movie. That's that's something else. Yeah. I actually didn't realize all of those were on that soundtrack. Yeah, it's a really good soundtrack. In the shadows when the lights are doused, the syndicates flare while they twist and shout with the sparks. I wanted to touch on one other part of the lyrics too. I, I love the in that part with the leather wrapped fender strap kid at the end where it says the, the cinder kids flare while they twist and shout. We're the sparks in the dark that will never go out. I love how he ties that to the prior line of she goes from tinder to cinder. Just thinking about how you can go from the the flame to the to the ashes, but then the music bringing somebody, you know, bringing them back as they're moving together. I mean, the same way that you would like start a fire, you know, with movement and friction and it's brilliant and it goes back to let us there be a revolution and a light to lead us on a ball of souls revolving spinning circles around the sun we've got all these yeah moments where the people Mm -hmm. themselves are the light and if people are the light and we can be ourselves in the dark well then the question did we leave the light on makes a little bit more sense too so I i think it's all braided throughout that's really cool. Uh, I hadn't considered those things. I being never linked, thought about but that's that. Really maybe cool. yeah. maybe we're the light. Did did we leave our light on? Maybe it's or did not we a forget to turn light. it on? Maybe right. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The light of our projection. The you know you've all heard the phrase. Whenever they show up, they just light up the room. Right. You know, somebody walks into the room, just their aura. Yeah, maybe that's a whole other way to look at that previous song. That's pretty cool. Yeah, your your potential. Yeah, mm-hmm. your your true self. That's really yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. That's how I, I took that line initially uh, when I read that. Um, uh, going from Tinder to Cinder until you realize uh, you're a flame of your own or, or something along those lines that, you know, Tinder helps start the fire. You can you can be that substance that brings about the fire. When the fire goes out, you can you can turn to, to Cinder, to ashes. Um, you know, I was thinking of the fire as as music. Uh, whether that's a fan going to a concert or a musician putting out out music that um, sometimes when the mu- when the music is over you can be left as cinder and, and ashes um, but that you can detach yourself from that too and realize that there's a fire in and of yourself and you don't always need the the music or whatever it may be in life whatever metaphor you want to use that to apply to um, to create a sense of belonging or fire in you that, that you have that within you no matter what, you know, without outside forces. Yeah. Katie, do you know on the bridge, I, I think I heard on an interview that that came from a real story of him being out all night around Halloween in the Bay Area as a kid and just remembering that. And he actually did see Dorothy and Drag. I, I, think, I think in the interview I heard they were actually in a back alley 
having sex with the tin man. <laughs> that makes so um, much more just, sense. <laughs> but just loving the whole thing of just like, you know, being a kid that can jump on the BART and ride in, into town, see a show and stay out all night and, and everything that was going on in uh, the Bay Area at that time and, and that little sanctuary for people uh, to be able to express themselves. I, th- I think I remember that him talking about that being sort of based on a true story. That sounds, I am pretty sure that's correct. Yeah. I got so distracted in the bridge because uh, my friend is there. (laughs) Z is the friend of mine. And it was so exciting the first time the song came on and we were like, Oh my God, there's Z. (laughs) Like we kind of like, I saw Dorothy in track taking the tin man for a ride. And then Z the cat said she knew where to go then she kissed me without a thought said sometimes memories are all that we got so come on boy let's make some at the show what an awesome suite of four songs i cannot wait for the next four to come out as well. What do you think, guys? Do you think that the connection mm. and the transition between the songs will go from four to five? I I have to think it'll be a, a separate story. Maybe some of the same characters will emerge, but I think it has to have some other concept or theme to it because this suite feels complete to me. It feels like a full story. And everything kind of connects well. I'm sure you could add stuff to the middle or to the beginning or to the end, but it kind of stands al- alone by itself and it has good closure. There's not really a cliffhanger that leaves leaves itself for a part two uh, per se, but that's my gut feeling on it. I'm not sure what to expect, but I know I'm excited, whatever it is. I've been thinking about yeah, it like too. opera. Um, mm. I think it'll pull from themes. And I think uh, mm-hmm. musically, I, when I say themes, I mean musical themes to carry the emotions from one place to another. But I don't know for sure if any of these characters will show back up. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I don't know. It will yeah. be interesting. I read in an interview, somebody was was asking Adam about whether or not he set out to, to make this as a, a concept album or have all the songs connect. And he said no, that it just kind of happened that way, that he wrote The Tall Grass, and then it, it sort of blended into... The next track he wrote and then he thought oh maybe i could uh, do this we didn't talk about it earlier there was a a fifth song or 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 an original fourth song that had to get scrapped and replaced right cause, yeah because he was afraid that he was accidentally copying a elvis costello <laughs> song right. or part of part yeah. of one of his songs yeah. from back in the day so i'm not sure where that all all fit in there but anyway he he responded basically by saying that he didn't think it was necessarily a concept album and that he never really sets out to write concept albums but that usually themes organically emerge based on where he was at at the time or or who he was during that writing session or what what the world was going through and that those tend to find their way into his music naturally without him sitting down and saying this is the theme now I'm going to write some songs underneath it he writes the songs and the theme kind of emerges, which I thought was pretty cool because obviously this seems like a concept album. It seems like it could be a movie. It was a short film, but it just kind of happened. 
it, it wasn't the intention, which I think is really cool. I don't know if he'd shoot me for saying this because I don't know if he would agree, but I've been saying it's not a concept <laughs> record. It's a conversation record. I think oh, the yeah. songs are in conversation yeah. with each other. Sure. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. Very cool. Maybe. Maybe he'll hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to we'll say see. I hope we find out. Because that would mean he might listen. We'll know to if it. he hates it. Yeah, because I'll get a yeah. call. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think this is a good time to wrap it up. I, I want to just say again, Katie, we are so happy to have had you join us. Your insight into the album, your relationship with the band, and, and then just even your love of music. I think finding some kindred spirits out there in listeners, but especially finding one in a guest and somebody that's done so much with it, with your blog, with your your teaching, with your writing. We just feel really fortunate to have had you on here, and you're making me think about these songs in different ways as well, and, and I think this album's going to continue to grow on me just with the insight that we've all brought to talking about it today. So thank you so much for taking the time with us. I really appreciate it. I had a great time, and I... I really appreciate a place to be able to talk about the counting crows like the geek i am because it is something that these days i i understand i have an implicit bias <laughs> so uh people aren't calling as often for comment on that <laughs> well you always have a home here on album divers for oh, sure I, I know we'll talk about counting crows probably mentioned them in several podcasts already i know we'll, we'll probably hit a another album of theirs in the future because there's so many good ones but and i couldn't agree more with what what trevor said katie it's been a pleasure having you on the show and hearing your connection to the band and what you're, you're doing in your your personal life and your career with music it's it's really cool to be able to connect with people like you this is something that has spun out of the podcast that we never really envisioned or or set out to do we we just wanted to get together and encourage each other to get back into listening to albums start to finish, whether that be an older album from our childhood that maybe we didn't fully understand or forcing us to discover new artists and other great music that's coming out. And, you know, we didn't really expect a ton of people to even listen too much or really cared about that. It was more about our project of of just growing our friendship through music. And, you know, it's been a pleasant surprise that we've been able to make other friends through this podcast, uh, through through the music and bring them onto sh onto the show, and uh, so it's just been a pleasure. It's been really awesome uh, getting to know you and, and speaking with you, and something that uh, would have never really expected. But it's um, it's been awesome. Yeah. It's been an honor. Thank, Thank you. you. This was all my pleasure. This was very very kind of you guys to let me talk with you. Well, on that note, I think we'll call it a wrap for today. But until next time, everybody, go listen to a great album. If you're enjoying listening to Album Divers, you can support our podcast by subscribing, reviewing, and sharing it with someone else that appreciates great music. Follow and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Album Divers. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback about our take on an album that you already loved or had never heard before. Do you have an album you want us to dive into? Email us at albumdiverspodcast at gmail.com and we'll consider adding it to our queue for a future episode. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you never stop discovering music that moves you to dive deeper. Until next time. <laughs>